Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, Nikki Eggers, Head of Investments, talks to Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer, about the oil sector's plight and asks if it is time to buy oil and whether governments have to step in and bail out the sector more directly. They also give answers to the most popular questions from clients at the moment. Hello, welcome to Word on the Street, where we're going to try to make sense of yet another first, uh, the first time in history that the front month oil contract has turned sharply negative. This means that people are effectively having to pay to have oil taken off their hands. We're going to talk about oil as, a, as an investment at these levels and what governments can do to help a sector where bailouts are, are not as simple as they used to be. We'll also have a look at some of our more popular client questions, um, see if I can exercise Will's grey matter somewhat. Um, so first things first, uh, Will, I've heard quite a few differing views around um, the current level of oil prices. Some are saying that at current levels it's an absolute steal, a huge opportunity. They're, they're looking back at when analysts were quoting price targets of, of around $200 a barrel back in 2014. And now look at prices where they are today. What, what do you think of this, Will? Is it, is it a sort of fill your boots kind of, kind of uh, level? So, so I remember it well, Nikki, the, the, the notes you're talking about when um, you know, industry analysts were uh, kind of extrapolating into the future and they were looking at, you know, they, at the time, you know, the, uh, the near month contract was, um, uh, was at $100 and people were looking sort of $150, $200 a barrel of oil and so on. Um, well, the world looks quite different since then, obviously. And I think there are a couple of points to make. So first thing is on the supply side um, has changed a bit in the last couple of decades. And one of the big stories there, if you think about it, is the US um, the US shale boom. boom. Um, so, you know, what you've found is that technological advances, particularly in things like, um, you know, amazing horizontal drilling, you know, the ability, uh, to some of the sort of the, the skills that um, they've developed in the industry in that, in that context are mind-blowing. But that's really given us access uh, to a whole load of previously um, inaccessible oil. On the demand side, um, and there's loads more points to make on supply, obviously, but that's one of the ones that sticks out. But on the demand side, you know, yes, you would um, have thought that the most acute phase of this kind of demand lull, um, lull probably understates it quite a bit, to be honest, will fade pretty quickly. Um, you're already seeing Asian economies finding ways to remobilize. Um, the rest of the world will likely follow over the next couple of months, quarters. However, I think it's hard to see a lot of travel coming back online very quickly. International travel, particularly, uh, is not going to return to previous norms, um, you know, before the arrival of a vaccine in all likelihood. Um, and if you think that kind of 60% of global crude oil demand goes into transportation overall, you can see some of the difficulty there on the demand side. Now, there are some arguing uh, right now, um, alongside all of this, that the oil market looks very different now because we're seeing some sort of protracted end game for fossil fuels. Uh, now, the argument here is that um, we are, it's no longer guaranteed that we'll actually use all of the reserves uh, of oil that this planet has um, provided us with. But in this context, it's no longer possible for a producer to play um, at the long game and keep resources in the ground until better prices arrive. Market share now uh, is the only thing that really matters. Now, those commentators will put this and the shale boom together and help uh, sort of uh, part trying to help explain uh, the Saudis and the Russians recently entering a price war um, over this stuff. So I think the best thing to say for those who would gain exposure is to do so in a diversified context. Uh, it's not worth betting the house on. Um, prices could easily go lower in the short term from here as well. So just be prepared for that. 
And, and so, Will, you're talking about oil there on a standalone basis, but, but obviously we also look at commodities in general as, as an asset class. Um, but, but looking at those you know, very poor returns that we've seen from, from commodities over the last few years, what, what is the point in having them as an asset class in that diversified mix? Yeah, it's a really important question, Nikki. And I think, you know, the, the key attributes that we would look for can be distilled into two main things. I mean, it's more complicated than this. It's always some kind of, you know, the simpleton the, uh, is, is trying to sort of uh, do it. So he understands it. Um, but I mean, I think the two things I would look for, one, you would obviously look for um, an asset to have a positive expected return over a reasonable time frame. obviously, when we're not going to deliberately put something into the mix that we think will lose money uh, for sure. The other quality that could be laid is really something sort of called that could be called sort of diversification appeal. I, the way the assets and assets price tends to move, if it was added to the existing toolkit of asset classes that we run for clients, um, it would help smooth the returns from this package. Uh, or, on the other hand, would it likely, would that return profile likely to actually increase and exaggerate the swings in the portfolio? I, ha I have no, no diversification appeal. Now, We've literally just done a root and branch review of all of our all our assets, um, as you know, um, and all our asset toolkit, and we found that commodities still very much satisfies um, both uh, both counts. Um, I can't deny that the last few years have been a bit disappointing in terms of returns from commodities, but unfortunately, that's just the nature of it. Unfortunately, uh, the team, uh, brilliantly clever though they are, are simply not capable of relying reliably picking only assets that will go up for the next decade. Um, a neat trick if you could pull it off. Um, but I think the yeah we will we'll try we'll try we're, we're coming up with it we're training Marder working Marder uh, but I think the understandable instinct here is to do a kind of you know a, a momentum asset allocation and what I mean by that is what you tend to think about on a long term view is if something's doing well uh, add more of it and if something does persistently badly take it out. Um, and actually, there is some evidence that in the very short term, this can work quite well, uh, that there is the evidence of some sort of persistent momentum uh, in uh, or some momentum in markets. However, if you are trying to organize your assets for the longer term, um, say the next decade or so, then actually some of the most successful long-term asset allocation strategies tend to be the opposite of what I just described. When something has been doing badly, you actually add more of it. When something has been doing well, you take uh, you, you, do the, you do the reverse. So you can see that it's a slightly different, uh, uh, different uh, kettle of fish, but all in all, um, that commodities remains for the moment and looks still an attractive asset class to, to be part of that mix. And, and Will, you mentioned just there that, that as a team, you look at um, those asset class mixes um, from, from time to time. And I know back a couple of years ago, Bitcoin was, um, was, was this new kid on the block. Um, and it was an area that, that, that I know you sort of put some consideration into. What, what ever came of that? Well, I know something's hitting the uh, hitting the popular imagination when my family uh, start asking, uh, you know, asking me about it. I mean, my family don't even know what I do day to day, and when they start asking me about Bitcoin, uh, you know, <laughs> you know just, just remind them never to lose the password. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, very true. So yeah, no, I mean, we did, obviously, we looked, um, um, we're obviously hampered a little bit from saying anything too authoritative about Bitcoin because of its youth, and to be honest. However, over that short time frame, it did actually seem to offer some diversification appeal. Um, so some of those smoothing properties we just talked about. However, we really struggled to find a positive expected return and the scale of the volatility was and continues to be eye-watering. Uh, if many of our clients have understandably found the last few months um, an uncomfortable experience in markets, then uh, Bitcoin offers a ride, even in small quantities, uh, many, many times as wild.
yeah and and well makes sense and i guess given um given what happened to uh to to the price over that time i know you were looking at it back in was it 2017 just before the peak um and then and then the subsequent collapse straight after so okay and turning to um the the client questions of the week um mm. i feel like we ought to have a jingle to go with that <laughs> we need a, a phone call i think <laughs> <laughs> Um, but clearly we're getting a lot of questions um, at, at the moment. So I've taken some of the some of the more popular themes that we've seen and sort of focused on three in particular this week. So first, you mentioned bailouts just now um, in reference to the energy sector, and there are a couple of questions that relate to that. So so starting off, I mean I guess we all we all think back and and you know all the talk was on governments running out of money, austerity was required um, in order to bring the debt pile down. But now governments everywhere are spending like it's going out of fashion. Um, I guess, you know, the worry is, aren't we just storing up the problems of today uh, for future generations? And secondly, related to that, um, centering on the idea that if you're bailing out companies, surely some of those are going to be ones that really otherwise would have gone out of business regardless. Um, and the concern there, I guess, is, is around the economy becoming less efficient um, and, and productive in the future. What, what's, what's your response to that, Will? Well, there's a load of, there's a load of questions in here. And I think the first, the first one I would sort of um, talk about, just the bailout itself. Um, so, you know, yes, there are, you know, bailouts of the energy sector. You're right, it is, it is more controversial at the moment. And I think that is something definitely worth bearing in mind. Um, there are some heavy duty discussions going on. I think you, you point out because, you know, as you, as you suggested, large chunks of the oil industry are just not going to be making money for some time. Um, it's worth pointing out that in the US, the Federal Reserve, the US Central Bank has already implicitly kind of backstopped the funding stream for uh, some of the most vulnerable oil businesses when it added kind of junk credit, uh, so-called junk credit to its palette of viable assets as part of its kind of rapidly expanding uh, crisis toolkit. But further support for the US sector and other sectors as well around the world is, is likely pretty complicated. Um, you know, the places where you are likely to see in the US, for instance, really heavy energy sector job losses, uh, tragically, are mostly Republican states. Uh, so Texas in the Permian Basin, North Dakota in the back end, uh, these are the big sort of uh, big areas of uh, shale oil production, are big areas, you know, very productive areas. One way suggested uh, of getting over the line in terms of direct support is to um, is to sort of a match up um, is to provide matching support for renewables. Um, there's also been talk of tariffs on imported oil in the US, but that would make very, life very difficult for you know the very sizable refining sector. But there's simply no easy solutions here. Now, in, in terms of the too much debt argument, I think that's really interesting because you know we're getting a lot of questions on that at the moment. Then I'm definitely right. Um, we never, you know, for our part, we never really got um, too sold on that too much. Tro uh, too much debt trope that the others to the extent others seem to go for it there's a load of reasons for that we've covered some of them on this podcast before as it goes however in this specific case i think it's worth remembering that it's not really possible for us to borrow from future generations in the way that the caricature demands uh, the simple question you have to ask yourself is who does all that debt get paid back to um and if you think about that, that sort of does get you around some of those problems. That, that's not to say that huge increases in government debt can't ever be a problem. Um, of course not. However, the crisis, uh, for this crisis, for example, uh, you could actually find that um, the situation forces Europe uh, a little further down that road towards mutually guaranteed regional debt. Um, um, and if that could happen, 
uh, and it's still a massive if, of course, then you could actually go some way to alleviating one of the government debt piles that really is a concern, and that that, that is Italy's. Um, and the final point to your question, really about productivity, this is it's a fascinating uh, question. And there's a guy called, um, there's a famous Austrian uh, economist called Joseph uh, Schumpeter, who's uh, very famous. Um, and he, among other things, was the first scholar uh, to solidify the concept of kind of the entrepreneur uh, as a sort of positive force in the economy. Uh, and he's also associated with this kind of weird term, um, creative destruction. Um, I sometimes think it's easy to describe it, and a real economist will uh, be, shocked or horrified at my sort of you know my simplification of this uh, uh this important investing uh, this important context but i sometimes think about it in sporting terms so in football rugby or cricket or any sport you play you have a certain amount of players allowed um i know your children are very keen hockey players your daughters are very yeah. keen hockey same story goes there um you're only allowed a certain amount of players on the pitch um, and they will be your, as the coach or the selector, you're going to try and make sure that the 15 players in rugby, 11 in cricket, so on and so on and so on, uh, are going to be the ones that use the ball most effectively, get most runs, score most goals, whatever, whatever, whatever. Now, however, this 11 will not remain the same it, it, at the national sides for decades, um, of course. Otherwise, you have to make room for amazing new players to come in and freshen up the side. Otherwise, we'd still be watching, you know, Gaza strut his stuff increasingly, which getting quite embarrassing after time wouldn't it uh, now the same is true of the economy basically um, room needs to be made for new businesses to break through and make the best of the resources bequeathed to us to an economy uh, particularly uh, you know primarily you know we are the best resources if you think about it and we need to be used most effectively for that to happen old or failing businesses sometimes have to make way now i think the point is that if you lose the appetite for the destruction part of this equation uh, and some would argue that we saw some of that same same after the last crisis you may have to expect that you lose some of the creativity that may accompany it maybe i guess a long-winded answer but there are certainly lots of problems that will arise directly as the result of actions taken by policymakers here i think nonetheless these policymakers right now will argue that these are nice problems to have they're relative to the ones they face today so you know it's something that they'll just accept okay but if the economy is less productive doesn't it make the debt palm less sustainable i mean after all we tend to rank the national debt size as a proportion of gdp yeah i mean I, it's a fair point nikki um again i would i would probably argue that you know this the sort of creative destruction element is one input into a really complicated story so there are i think fewer kinds of global truths here than the productivity narrative sometimes implies um it would also be much, much worse for productivity, one suspects, if governments just stood aside and let the economic effects of this one play out uh, without any support whatsoever. So you probably, you know, you're, in that scenario, you'd be looking at a kind of 1930s style um, depression, one suspects, uh, and their debt parts would be much less sustainable, uh, even the existing ones we had pre this expansion. So uh, it still seems to be sort of, you know, in favour of policymakers acting and spending this money now. And so next, next question around valuations. So lots of clients have been talking to us about whether, you know, are, are stocks really attractive at these levels? So, you know, we've got the earnings season upon us. Um, we're seeing plenty of evidence that uh, things are pretty bad, right? Whether you're an optimist about the recovery or not. Um, the world economy is clearly enduring at least a couple of quarters of, of you know, falling growth. Um, so, Stock markets have already retraced some of the dramatic losses that, that we saw in, in March. But, you know, is it, is it very much a um, buying opportunity right now? What, what, what are you seeing in valuations? 
Yeah, I mean, it's certainly, um, and you hit, you hit all the right points. I mean, it's certainly complicated at the moment. Um, I think one mistake people tend to make on this front is that they assume that share prices of companies or groups of companies quoted on exchanges, um, that they reference this next year's earnings only. Um, and so therefore corporate earnings are expected to be down by 25 to 50% maybe, you know, in some regions this year. So all things equal, that should be what stock market should fall over the course of this year. Um, now, um, however, share prices, I think it's, um, it's important to point that they're, they're, they are a function of an evolving estimate of all the future earnings um, that that company or index is likely to generate. Um, and that means that the actual fair value of a company or index can be a lot less volatile uh, than its near-term earnings. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we're not so worried about valuation right now, I have to admit, in an absolute terms. Yeah, good perspective. But, but um, so on a standalone basis, yes, but what about relative to other asset classes? Well, this is a key question for us, I think. And the, and the answer uh, here is a bit easier, to be honest. Um, because if you look at the previous sort of thing, you're looking at sort of, you know, one of the things about index valuation, for instance, is, is changing sector composition. Um, and so over time, obviously, and this is a point we've made a lot, is that, you know, people look back 100 years and say, well, the stock market's very expensive relative to 100, 150 years ago, or back to the dawn of the stock market back in the uh, beginning of the 19th century, or end of, uh, end of the, um, uh, sorry, not beginning of the 18th, 19th century, but the dawn of the S&P, let's say, um, sort of right around the turn of uh, sort of uh, the, the 20th uh, the 20th century um, you had the index was 12 railroad companies and these are highly risky risky frontier businesses that require massive investment and all these kind of things and they're very risky now you fast forward to today and the dominant sector of the market is the technology index um, and that's a very different kind of valuation proposition in a sense so you have found valuation um, go up over time but that may be less uh, you know it's, it's less uh, less alarming than it might seem at first blush now if you look on a relative basis if i'm given a 10-year time frame and asked to beat inflation over that time frame the easy point for me to make right now, I think, on a valuation standpoint, is equities look by far and away my most useful weapon at the moment relative to bonds, cash on deposits, so on and so on. So that's very much still informing uh, the way we set up those kind of longer term, medium to higher risk portfolios. Brilliant. Great stuff, Will. <clears throat> so thank you for joining us this time. Um, we'll be back next week. Do keep your questions coming in via LinkedIn. Um, and I'm going to go off and do some tidying. <laughs> it's lovely to have a glimpse it's, oh. yes. <laughs> you can see in the background a light falling off my wall which is ripped off so you can see job for the weekend job for the weekend all investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance this podcast is not a personal investment recommendation